Shalom and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Gaddishi. We're going to be dealing with Perak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, through Perak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Yudhet today in Parashat Vayishlach. Before we move on, just to finish up a little bit from yesterday's, we should mention the famous Midrash, that the mysterious man we spoke about struggling with Yaakov was the angel of Esav, uh, some type of physical manifestation of the ghost or the specter of Esav that Yaakov is struggling with. Uh, the text also says that Yaakov remained behind, and so the struggle seems to have gone on for some time. He had remained there for a while, and it lasted until the dawn. And as such, it's surprising that no one from Yaakov's family or camp goes back to see what's going on and why is Yaakov taking so long. Uh, hopefully we'll get to that also later today. Uh, in general, the Mefrashim see this struggle as a prelude or as a desired playing out of how the upcoming meeting with Esav will go. The face-to-face confrontation is what Yaakov wants. He cannot really handle 400 men and also protect his family. He desires to go back to the time when he was that stick figure with no possessions as he was when he first left Canaan. And that is what Yaakov creates by remaining behind alone. Still, this doesn't explain why he didn't go ahead of everyone to face Esau alone, or why he sent his family camp into danger. But it does explain how his being alone for the first time in over 20 years allows him to fully encounter and deal with his Esau issue. Let's continue now with Pasuk Lamed Aleph. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, and he was limping on his hip. Therefore, the Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, do not eat the sinew of the, of the thigh, which is by the hip socket, to this day. For he had touched Yaakov's hip socket at the sinew of the thigh. So we have Yaakov limping. Uh, if all of the struggle indeed took place in a dream, as we mentioned before, the Rambam and the Ralbag, also the Ramban and the Barbanel, explaining that it had a, it was all in a dream, uh, it did have some physiological impact on Yaakov, after he awoke and he was really limping. Uh, Pasuk Lamed Bet tells us, therefore, we don't eat the Gid HaNasheh. Well, this Pasuk seems to be out of place. It really should have been recorded as Pasuk Chavav right after it happened. It should have been, Vayar kilo yacholo, Yaakov, Yaakov emo. He saw he couldn't beat him, and so he hit him at the uh, thigh. And then, that should have been followed right there. With That's why the Jewish people don't eat the Gid HaNasheh. Why is it that the Torah leaves this important piece of uh, information to explain this custom law until after it records that Yaakov moved on from Penuel and was limping? So yeah, we have more questions, but not to worry. Hopefully today we will try to explain a lot of what is going on. Perek Lamed Gimel Pasuk Aleph Vayisa Yaakov Enav and Yaakov lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, Esav is coming and with him 400 men. And he divided the children between Le'an and Rachel and between the two maids. Based on this pasuk, we see Yaakov is suddenly back with his family. That means he had crossed back over the abok, even with his disjointed leg. And again, back to more of our questions. If he wanted to be with the family, why did he initially stay back on the northern side of the abok? And now, why is he joining them? Pasuk Bet. And he placed the Shafachot, the maids, and their children first, and Le'an, her children, after them, and Rachel and Yosef 
last. The word acharonim here means next, basically, and then the uh, last time it says acharonim is uh, the next next, which is last in this situation. As Rashi points out, being last here is acharon, acharon haviv, because if there's something that goes wrong and they will have to run away from Esav, the last people will have a better chance of surviving because they have a few more seconds to get away. Well, if they're really down to the last few seconds that make a difference, why did he bother crossing them over the Yabok to begin with? So again, referring, recurring back to that question. As we get close to his meeting of Esav, we see Yaakov is frantic and stressed. It's not, he's not even in a good shape to fight. Uh, as a reader, I was really waiting for that final scene in the Karate Kid movie, the first one. Looking for the nighttime struggle to be played out here. Everything up to this moment points to an inevitable physical confrontation. And we get to Pasuk Gimel. And we see something a little bit different. And he passed before them and bowed to the ground seven times until he drew near his brother. So finally Yaakov acts as we expect. He goes out in front, but he doesn't go towards Esav to fight. He's bowing seven times, again and again and again. And this time he's giving back the blessings of but this is not the dream. This doesn't reflect the struggle with the mysterious man. If that was the prelude to what was happening, uh, why is Yaakov doing this? If Yaakov was supposed to take the dream as the portending of the imminent meeting with Esav, Yaakov should roll up his sleeves and wrestle with Esav. But Yaakov learned what we didn't learn. We saw Yaakov prevail in the struggle. However, Yaakov learned the lesson of playing tic-tac-toe in war games. There are no winners in fighting your brother in war. Yaakov saw he prevailed when he let go. When he was ready to let go, that's when he got blessed. That's when he was kisarita imedokim v'imanashim vatuchal. That's the prevailing vatuchal. It only happens after he was ready to let go and stop fighting. And therefore Yaakov takes on this subservient stance to Esav. Pasuk Dalet. Vayarot Esav lekrato vayhabbekehu vayipol asavara vayishakehu vayivku. And Esav ran to meet him and embraced him and fell upon his neck and kissed him and they wept. Well, while Yaakov is playing this uh, airy-fairy subservient pacifist, we're waiting for the moment of impact of Esav charging at Yaakov. While Yaakov is bowing, Esav is running towards, uh, uh, towards Yaakov. The next words could easily have been, And he took out his sword and lunged at Yaakov. But we don't get that. Instead, we get the scene from the Irish charge at Falkirik from Braveheart. Yeah, lots of movie references today. So if you don't remember it, you should YouTube. It's very funny. Esav hugs him, and Esav falls on his neck, and they both cry. The scene is one of Yaakov in utter and complete discomfort. You can almost envision Yaakov standing stiff like the stick figure that he wants to see himself as, while getting hugged and kissed by the burly Esav. He cries, but he doesn't hug back or kiss back Esav. It's almost as if he feels he's being violated by Esav. They're crying from different places for different reasons. But we are all relieved, somewhat, uh, but is it over? The dots on the word Vayishakehu in the Torah, there's a whole bunch of dots over this word of, and he kissed him. And the Mefashim explained in the Gemara that this is a machloket about whether or not this kiss was a sincere kiss or not. We can't make out Esav's motivations. The wrestling and this scene are also seen as representative of how Jews deal with non-Jews throughout the exile, which is again that same issue we saw earlier with Abimelech and Yitzchak, how much are the non-Jewish world out to get us, and how much are they just really acting in their own self-interest. Again, we see here kissing and crying when seeing a long-lost relative, didn't matter if it's the same sex or different sex, doesn't seem to have any impact uh, for the time. And after all of this, Esav 
uh, looks a little bit beyond uh, holding on to Yaakov, and he sees uh, what looks like his family. And then we get the introductions. And he raised his eyes and saw the women and children, and he said, Who are these with you? And he said, The children with whom God has favored your servant. And the slave girls drew near the shfachot, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah too, and her children drew near, and they bowed down. And then Yosef and Rachel drew near and bowed down. So there's a little bit of a renewed tension, even after this initial uh, relief that we had when he met with Yaakov. But uh, now we're wondering whether or not Esav is going to attempt to take any of the women or the children or to harm them. Rachel and Yosef again presented last, which is a, another preferential treatment. It's not that just they're physically set up last in line, but they're also presented last, almost to try to be going unnoticed. So we still have a tension with Esav. Uh, we move on to Psukim Chet through Yud Aleph. Vayomer milecha kol machane azeh shel pagashti. Vayomer limsohen beene adoni. Vayomer Esav yesh li rav. Achi yilecha shelach. ויאמר יעקב אלנה אימנה מצאתי חן בעיניך ולקחתה מנחתי מידי כי על כן ראיתי פניך קראות פני אלוהים ותרצני כך נא את ברכתי אשר הובאת לך כי חנני אלוהים וכי יש לי חול ויבשר בו ויקח. And we thought we had questions, Esav begins to ask away. And he said, what do you mean by all this camp I have met? And he said, to find favor in the eyes of my Lord. And Esav says, I have much my brother, keep what you have. And Yaakov said, Oh, no, pray. If I found favor in your eyes, take this tribute from my hand, for I have not seen your face. For have I not seen your face as one might see God's face, and you received me in kindness? Pray, take my blessing that has been brought to you, for God has favored me, and I have everything. And he pressed him, and he took it. Yaakov asked, Who is the camp that I met? And Yaakov says, To find favor in your eyes. Yaakov draws the parallel to the struggle with the mysterious man to all the readers to make clear he sees his face, meaning Esav's face, as the face of God. This is the mysterious man. Uh, and you received me in kindness. You have accepted me. As the Abarbanel points out, Yaakov slips and subconsciously exchanges the word of minchati, which was used until now for the gift offerings, with birchati, with my blessing. He wants to refer to the gift offerings that uh, he's giving Esav, but he's also seeking to restore to Esav the bracha which he stole years earlier. To quote the Abarbanel, says, please take the bracha from my, my bracha, meaning the bracha that I took in the seat from my father. Please you take it, because I admit that it was really brought to you and not to me, and that Aside from that, God has already blessed me. And he insisted, and Esav took it. But one last round of questions, then we'll rewind. Uh, why is Esav asking all of these questions, especially about the gift offering? Didn't Yaakov tell each of the three gift envoys specifically to say that they are a gift offering to Esav from his servant Yaakov, and Yaakov is behind them? And if we go back at Psukim Yud Zayin Techaf, he commanded each group that this is what you are to say. So did all three not do their job? Why didn't Esav already know what they are? And as Yaakov took pains to separate each flock, making space in between each one, 
Eder, and there were three different gift convoys with separate flocks, why does Esav lump them all together as one group and refer to them as a machane? So, time to rewind. At this point, you probably all realize that the first shiur went by too fast, and it's all by design. Nothing was left to chance, just like Yaakov's master plan. So here is the reconstruction of what we can piece together. Uh, Yaakov's initial correspondence with Esav is well thought out. He has a great laundry list of all that he acquired in Haran, Vahili, Shor, Vachamor, Tzon, Ve'eved, Beshevcha. But what category did he leave out? He omitted the wives and the children. From the end of Parashat Vayera, we see that even close relatives didn't hear from one another for many years. Avram gets news that his brother Nahor had 12 children, eight from his wife Milka and four from the Pilegish, and that one of his kids, those kids, already had a kid of their own, Betuel had Rivka. So many years have passed by since Avram and Nahor uh, got any news flashes about the other family, and that's when they are in good terms. So too here, Yaakov realizes that Esav knows nothing about his family. The only thing Esav will know is what Yaakov now tells him. By omitting the wives and the children, he hopes to be able to save them, as we are about to explain. When Yaakov hears that he may be subject to military threat, he sees his accompanying angels, and perhaps they even tell him this plan. Maybe this was their mission to tell Yaakov, which is Machanaim, double camp. Yaakov decides not that he is going to diversify risk by creating two camps, because as we saw, he keeps all the wives and children in one camp, but rather Yaakov has devised that he will create a decoy camp, thus creating his own double camp, his own Mahanaim, one which will be wealth only and which he will send towards Esav, and the other with all of his family. Yaakov says if Esav meets up with the one camp, Vehikahu, we thought initially that that meant, and he will smite it, meaning describing what Esav might do when he meets up with that camp. But here Yaakov is saying, if Esav come upon that camp, vehikahu, let him smite it, almost as a desired outcome. And why? Because then the remaining camp, with all the family, will escape. How can Yaakov be sure? Because Esav will think he has met up and destroyed all of Yaakov's camp when he met up with the first half. He will never know he missed anyone or anything. He doesn't know there are wives and children, and he cannot fathom that there is yet even more wealth. So once he meets the first camp, the second camp could escape. It is a brilliant plan, except, except that it falls apart. So what happens? Yaakov had split the camps into two in Pasuk Chet and sent them on their way due south to cross the Yabok on their own and keep going towards Esav. They are the bait, to be destroyed if need be. Some hours pass by and Yaakov is under tremendous pressure and stress, and then before Yaakov goes to sleep, he prays. It is now the night time, as the beginning of Pasuk Yudal, it tells us, Vayalen Sham that's when the tefillah took place. And in that tefillah, Yaakov says, Ki makli avarti et And this is where the slip-up happens. The text tells us that Yaakov was at the Yabok. But here, Yaakov misidentifies where he's standing. He thinks he's standing at the Yarden. For with my staff, I crossed this Jordan, this Yarden. Really, he's at the Yabok. If you recall, we had said that the Yabok is perpendicular to the Yarden, meaning that we have a totally different direction. Yaakov's misorientation and loss of direction can be understood, given that it was nighttime, again, perhaps a payback for taking advantage of Yitzchak's blindness. And as you can see in the pictures in my book, the two areas look the same even in the day. It may also be that Yaakov never traveled this route when he came from Beersheba to Haran, and even if he did, it was over 20 years ago. There's no way that he would be expected to recognize this terrain. He didn't even realize the water was flowing left to right instead of right to left. Perhaps there wasn't much of a flow. 
But regardless of how we answer the question of how could it be that Yaakov made that mistake, the mistake is made. For Yaakov himself says he is by the Yarden. But the text tells us he's by the Yabok. We can't get away from that fact. So what happens from here on in is simply tragic. When Yaakov is facing the Yabok, thinking it's the Yarden, he wants to send the gift envoys to Esav to travel in the night. And they mistakenly go east instead of south. They end up traveling in the direction of Iraq. Yaakov thought he sent them south towards Esav. But because of the mistake of Yabok and Yarden facing different directions, they never make it to Esav at all. The gift convoys are never meeting up with Esav. Later in the night, when Yaakov fears for the worst and can possibly feel his twin brother closing in on him, he awakes in terror and decides that now is the time to complete implementing his decoy camp plan. He has to say goodbye. He's to face Esav alone. He then sends his family camp across what he thinks is the Yarden to what he thinks is westward into Canaan, into safety, away from Esav's path. And he returns to the other side of what he thinks is the eastern side of the Yarden to wait for Esav to come from the south. Unfortunately, due to his Yarden Yabok error, he has accidentally sent his family due south, into Esav's path. And he is waiting on the northern side of the Yabok behind them. And this is why no one from Yaakov's camp is going back to see where Yaakov is and why Yaakov isn't coming to join them. Because he's not meant to be coming back to join the camp until after he meets up with Esav and that whole ordeal is over. The family camp itself thinks they're in Canaan as well, in safety. You can rewind this a couple of times to get all the directions down with a pen and paper. But we need to know that Yaakov's stress and discombobulation are excusable, but only till the dawn, where the impending sunrise in the east allows Yaakov to realize the magnitude of his mistake. At that moment, he's locked with the mysterious man. And then someone says, Shalecheni. So who's saying Shalecheni? Yaakov or the mysterious man? Well, let's think back. Not so long ago, who used the same word when concerned about his wives and family? Who said that? Who said Shalecheni? Let me help you. Yaakov says Shalecheni. He told it to Lavan to send him free so that he can take together with him his wives and his children. He said it then and he's saying it now. He is the one saying Shalecheni. He realizes he cannot spend any more time with this wrestling match. He needs to catch up with his family before they run into Esav. And he needs to implement the decoy plan properly and send them out of harm's way. He says, send me. And the text explains, Ki because the dawn broke, now Yaakov understands his mistake. As he departs from the mysterious man, and you can refer to the book to see how all the psukim work out, he now begins to run back to his family, but his leg, he's limping, he's in pain, but he can't stop now. He thinks of all of his family, especially of his beloved Rachel and about Yosef, he can't stop, he won't stop, he has to rush to save them no matter what. And that's why the Jewish people won't eat the Gid HaNasheh to remember that Yaakov was hurt in the Gid HaNasheh. But he went on to save the nation from impending doom from Esav regardless. That's why this custom command is not recorded when the injury happens because that's not what's important. What's important is that it's mentioned in the verse where Yaakov moves on from Penuel to go to his family despite his injury. That's how he saved the whole nation and he deserves recognition for that. He no sooner catches up with his family and wow, just in time, as he catches up with them, Esav is in sight. The decoy plan needs to be abandoned. He is now in panic mode and splits the family in so obvious a way as to show his favoritism to Rachel and Yosef, but he doesn't care. This could be the end. 
and Rachel and Yosef are all that really matter. The point of impact with Esav occurs, the crying, the kissing. And then Esav sees what looks like family, but the message he got didn't mention any family, so he didn't expect to see any. So he asks, who are these people? Then he asks about the Machaneh. Now Yaakov knows he told the gift envoys to tell them, uh, to tell Esav what to say. There shouldn't really be any questions about it, but then Yaakov looks around and he realizes there's no sign of the gift convoys. Instead, he realizes that Esav met up with the decoy camp that he sent out earlier the day before. And that's why Esav refers to it as a machaneh. It was set up like a machaneh, like a camp, not like a gift convoy. And there was only one. The three different groups of gift groups never are now probably backtracking from Iraq. They never made it to Esav. Yaakov quickly realizes that this means that Esav did not get any gifts. And there are 400 men in the shadows, in the backdrop here. What can he do? So Yaakov definitely converts the decoy camp from being his decoy camp into being his gift convoy. In this way now, Esav is not just getting some sampling of what God blessed Yaakov with, but rather is becoming a full 50% partner with Yaakov on what it is that Hashem blessed him. There's much more to say. That's why we write books. Go read it up. Uh, we didn't answer what the favor is that Yaakov wants from Esav, uh, that he keeps asking to find favor in your eyes. But we will, Bezat Hashem, get back to that later this week. Uh, to finish up, let's get through Psukim Yud Bet to Yud Zayin. Pasuk Yud Bet, Vayomer Nisav in Elecha, Ve'erecha Lenegdecha. Esav offers Yaakov, Let us journey onward and go, and let me go alongside you. And Yaakov answered, My Lord knows that the children are tender and the nursing sheep and cattle are my burden. If they are whipped onward a single day, all the flocks will die. Pray, let my Lord pass on before his servant. And I, let me drive along at my own easy pace, at the heels of my livestock before me, and at the heels of the children, till I come to my Lord in Seir. Esav tells him, Pray, let me set aside for you some of the people who are with me. And Yaakov answered, Why should I find such favor in the eyes of my Lord? And Esav returned that day onto his path towards Seir. And Yaakov journeyed on to Sukkot and he built himself a house. And for his cattle he made sheds. Therefore is the name of the place called Sukkot, meaning the sheds that he made for the animals. Interestingly, while seemingly resolving all of his Esav issues, he still, Yaakov still does not go home yet but rather is setting up camp in a place called Sukkot. It's not clear how long he stays there, but definitely he's not heading straight home. Uh, we'll have to talk a little bit about that later. Uh, in our next shiur, we'll begin the prelude to the rape of Dina in Perek Lamed Dalet and get through most of the story in Perek Lamed Dalet. So please stay tuned. Gadishi signing off.